0: here we are at the kind of, in a sense, the end of the road to the kingdom, but we're really not at the end of the road to the kingdom because, of course, the kingdom is eternal. It goes on forever. But our sermon series has come to this point, and uh, just kind of advertising for what our first sermon series of of 2022 will be, uh, we're going to be going into the book of Acts, and we're going to say, okay, what does this look like? All this stuff we've been talking about, kingdom and all that, what's it look like? On this earth, um, what does it look like for people who are on this road, on this path? And so, we'll jump into the Book of Acts starting uh, next week. But just to kind of make sure we got some of the major points here, when we're talking about road to the kingdom, um, one of the important things is to understand, you know, what is the kingdom, and and the kingdom is is in the most simplest terms, the kingdom is simply God's reign, God's reign. God reigns with us. God reigns in us. We live in Him; He lives in us. Our lives are saturated by God. You might well. What does that feel like? Um, what is that like? What is that experience like? And and you know, there's a different ways we could perhaps talk about it. But I think the primary way that we experience the kingdom in this world is that when we we experience the unconditional love of God. The unconditional love of God. And that flows in two directions. One is when we experience it from God. And and some of you, especially those of you who came to Christ um, kind of later in life, and by later I mean... Past the age of 12. Um, so, a lot of you. You came to faith later in Christ. You remember, some of you remember what that was like. When you went from this world and living this life without love from God, without really knowing what that meant. And as you converted, as God came into your life, as you professed faith in Jesus Christ, you experienced that love. You experienced that forgiveness. You experienced that grace, that mercy. And you remember. But it's not something that we should just experience and remember that, you know, that, that first day. Something that had, it's, a, it's not even right to call it an infinite bucket of love because buckets make it seem like it's not infinite. But if an infinite God who's perfect in love is pouring out this love upon us, something we should experience every day. And you, maybe you're kind of caught up in this little Like, well, I I don't know. I'm not experiencing that. Well, did God stop pouring out love? Or is he pouring out love and somehow you are living in such a way that you cannot experience it? Well, there's the other flow. There's the flow of God's love to us. But the other way we, we experience the kingdom in this world is when God's love flows from us. And we've talked a lot about that, and I don't want to re-preach those sermons. Um, but I, I do want you to understand that, that when we love others, not with our love, not with our selfish look-at-me love, not with our i feel better about myself now that i have helped those in need No, not that love. That love in the world's eyes is is fine, but it's not this unconditional love of God. The unconditional love of God that does secret things, that, that often loves secretly, where even your right hand and your left hand don't know what the other is doing. It's not love for attention, it's not love to earn your way to heaven. It's just love. As John writes about it in 1 John, it's become our nature. It's weird when people maybe comment on it or point it out to us or write it in a note and you're like, oh, okay. You know, I didn't, didn't realize that, but I'm glad you feel that. It's like, does, does water have to, like, think like, oh, today I'm going to be wet? No, water is just wet. It doesn't have to think about being wet. When we're truly born of God, we don't have to think about, oh, now I'm going to show love. It's just who we are just comes out oh it has direction it has purpose as i've talked about before in the church you know the objective of love is that we love each other towards holiness its love is not just this hey everybody let's all be happy and let's all figure you know out how to keep each other happy no i worry as a pastor if i start getting in that mindset of thinking about my job is to keep the people in the church happy. I worry about that because then I'm not necessarily you know, really doing my job. I should think that if we love each other and that we understand the holiness of God, that that is really what binds us together. But if you really want to know the kingdom, if you really want to know the kingdom, it's not only the love that we receive from God and the love that we show to each other, it's, it's more evident, even more evident, when we love those that we would not normally love. Jesus points this out in different stories. He talks about, you know, the good Samaritan. He talks about how you love the people that Actually, don't treat you nice. That you stop on the side of the road to help that person who would just race right by you and not even give it a second thought. When you not only help those people, but when you actually love those people, you know that's not you, you know that's not your nature. That's God reigning in you. And that's why Jesus can say those audacious things like don't just love the sinners, don't just love the tax collectors, don't just love the prostitutes, don't just love your friends, don't just love your family, love all of those people. But also, love your enemies. And don't love your enemies only after they've become your friend. And don't love your enemies thinking that if you love them, somehow they will become your friend. You love them. Not because they deserve it. Not because you like them. Not because you're going to get something from them or it's going it's to make you know, your relationships better. You're not in, you know, in any way being you know, manipulative or anything else. It's just who you are. If you were here on Christmas Eve service, I told you there were two responses, two appropriate responses we have uh, to Jesus. And, and, on, and on the Christmas Eve service, we said that, that one of those responses was to repent. Repent. And I want you to kind of understand this again. I'm not going to preach a sermon again. But understand what what repent is. Repent is not simply turning away from sin. Not simply turning away from sin. It's it's turning toward Jesus. It's not just away from sin. If you turn away from, from sin, you may turn towards another sin. You may turn toward something that's not as bad and maybe it's even kind of good because you're trying to do good and so you're turning toward your, yourself and your own ability to be a better person. You may turn toward someone else who promises if, if you'll follow, you know, read their book, follow their, you know, their videos, their podcasts, that if you just live their, the way they're saying that, that you'll, you'll be a better person. And maybe you will. Maybe you will. But that's not repentance. Repentance is not simply turning away from the dead end path, but it is turning toward Jesus. Then, what we're going to talk about today is when I turn toward Jesus. When I really look at Jesus, when that song, one of my favorite songs, talks about, you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, when you really look at Jesus and you encounter Jesus, something happens. We see it in the Christmas story. We talked a little bit about it previous week. We see it from Mary. We see it from the shepherds, the wise men. And what do they have in common? They're, they're not just happy. It's not just amazement. It's not even just joy. It's worship. They worship. You see, the world, the world wants to celebrate Christmas. They want to celebrate this baby. They want to say, yes, baby Jesus. But they don't want to worship Jesus. Worship Jesus is is more than, oh, we're singing a song. It's more than just thinking good thoughts about Jesus. It's worshiping him because, as the Bible tells us, he is God. God is the only one who deserves our worship. And our only response, our only response to when we see Jesus is worship. We're going to jump forward out of the Christmas story here, but not really that far. You see we're going to go to revelation because we want to see like what does revelation tell us about this kingdom this road to the kingdom what what is how is it pictured there and and so in revelation we we're going to we're going we're gonna to look at these visions that god has been given i mean that god has given to john and in these visions john is seeing the fulfillment of god's plan To establish his kingdom. Remember, that has always been God's plan. God's plan was not to create a world, his plan was to establish a kingdom. Always been his plan. It's not plan B, it's not plan C, it has always been the plan. And those of you who joined us Wednesday night, you know, we we unpacked this and, and we talked a little bit about how the first three chapters of the Gospel of John are the reality of this world, the reality of this experience. That when we look at all the, the you know where John finds himself, John finds himself in exile. Why is he in exile? He's in, he's in exile because he's a believer and he's being persecuted for his faith. He's in exile. And then we read about the seven churches and all of the seven churches in their reality are struggling. They're either struggling because they're being persecuted or they're struggling because false teachers are trying to come in and, and kind of you know, change, the, you know, change the gospel, you know, get them to follow after these different ways, or they themselves have become complacent. They themselves have, have started to modify what they believe or what their experience is. And so we get the reality, the reality of the world, the reality of the church in the world in those first three chapters. And then chapters 4 and 5, John steps into the throne room of God. He gets a vision. And in this vision, he gets to see the throne room of God. And so chapter 4 is all about that. And he describes it and describes as best he can what he sees and how wonderful and awesome it is. And then we get to chapter 5. So in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. He's identified the one seated on the throne as God. a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This the vision John has, and as he's having the vision, he sees this 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 scroll, and he knows that that scroll has everything that's needed. Because he's just seen these other visions, he knows his own reality. He's you know he's being persecuted. He's in you know in exile. He sees that as Christianity has grown, at first everybody pretty much left Christianity alone except for some of the Jewish leaders. They weren't happy with Christianity because they felt like those Christian Jewish people were kind of you know, making a mockery and blasphemy out of, out of their faith. And so at first it's just like that, but as Christianity grows and, and starts to spread across the empire starting to get the attention of powerful people. And we know near the end of the first century, you know, Rome is already struggling with different things um, at this point politically, and they're looking for, for something to hold them together. And the emperor who, who's there near the end of the first century, he thinks the way they're going to hold everything together is to kind of resurrect the, the, the Roman pantheon to make a focus on Roman religion. And you can imagine, for the Christians, this becomes a problem. And so John looks at that, and he's like, is this how it's always going to be? There's always going to be this cycle of, of... power and being dominated and you know being infiltrated and being drawn away to false teachings to becoming stone cold in our in our love for God or worse becoming lukewarm is that all that we're ever gonna be living between these two worlds is that what life is and then he gets to step into the throne room of God and he gets to see God's reality. And he knows the only way God's reality becomes his reality is if those scrolls can be opened. And they can't be opened. And he begins to weep. You see, what John understands... Is that without someone worthy to open those scrolls, the only honest response to the world, the only honest response to what's going on in our world today and what's gone on in our world throughout history, the only honest response is despair. It's despair. Remember when we read Romans 1? We're looking at Romans 1, verses 18, on to the end. That's the world. It's a world that continues in rebellion against God. It's a world that that has moved to the point of, of either creating its own gods or trying to abandon the whole concept of God together. And what they're left with is just each other. And whether they're having their gods go to war with each other or whether they are just going to war with each other without God, it doesn't matter. You see, what we know throughout history is, you know, you 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 can change the names. You can change the names of the countries. You can change the names of the forces. You can change the names of the leaders. But as long as everything is based on power, as long as that's fundamentally what underlies everything, the game never changes. We just change who's fighting, who's in charge. And what makes it even scarier and even more a reason to despair, which you know, John doesn't necessarily understand that we understand, is that throughout history, We have improved our ability to kill one another, but we haven't improved our ability one bit to love one another. Our new ways of killing means that you need fewer people. All you have to have is a handful of people who hate and you can do a lot of damage. You know, and I can talk about it on a geopolitical, global scale, but this truth is also true on the interpersonal level. So much of what goes on in, in our communities, our societies, even some of you who just came through Christmas, Christmas we always, we always have the, the you know, happy family, we're all together kind of thing. And sometimes people, they say, they don't, they don't necessarily want peace on earth, they just want peace at Christmas, you know what that means? Like we don't bring up certain su- topics we don't bring up certain subjects. We just smile at each other and say, oh, you know, God bless you. Merry Christmas. Love you. We want peace at Christmas. But that doesn't take away the turmoil and the conflict. The only honest response is the response that John gives. The only reason you or I, if we were in John's position, weren't doing the same thing is because we go, wait, we know about Jesus. If we don't know about Jesus, this is what the world is. The world you know, you hear different philosophies, you hear different groups kind of dangle out there this, these, 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 you know, kind of branches of saying like, hey, uh, you know, if we will just do this, then we'll all get along. If we can just get rid of this one group, Or if we can just get rid of this one person, this one leader, then we'll all get along. And no, that's not what happens. What happens is you get rid of that one person, you get rid of that one group, that one nation, that one power, and then the deck just gets shuffled again, and the game keeps getting played. Merry Christmas. No, we're not ending there. If we were ending there, this would be like the worst after Christmas sermon ever. But let's read. Verse 5 says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This vision—it's so dramatic the way it's presented. You know, John. You know, if I were John, I'd be like, "Why you do me like that, God? Why couldn't you just tell me the good news from the beginning? Why did you have to lead me to the point of weeping before you go?" Oh, guess what? I already made a way. It's important. It's important that we not just race, race to the kingdom. Because if we just race to the kingdom and we don't understand the plight of the world, we will never fully appreciate the kingdom. What this tells us is the truth that I hope all of us know, that Jesus is the only hope for the world. Jesus is the only hope for the world. Only Jesus can break the power of power. Only Jesus can replace that system with something that's better, that's superior. And it's because it requires more than us just getting some good ideas. It requires more than just eliminating the really bad guys and just letting all the good guys hang out together. It requires transformation. The hope that Jesus brings to us, the hope that Jesus presents to us, is that, is that this, this true salvation of the world Only comes when Jesus changes each of us and Jesus changes all of us. Each of us needs to be transformed. And all of us, all of us who are in the kingdom, we need to be transformed. It's each of us individually. It's all of us collectively as a community. I don't know why God made it this way. I kind of think I do, but I'm not going to try to explain it this morning. I'm just going to tell you the fact. If you have a church where people are growing and they're transformed, being transformed by the Holy Spirit and by God's Word and, and they are f- Forming this community, it just takes one person. It just takes one person to inject power into that community, and that community is threatened. It just takes one person who's there for their own pride for their own influence, for their their own sense of purpose, and no longer there because of God's amazing, unconditional, life-transforming love. It just takes one. And the entire community, I don't care how big, is, is threatened. It's why the Bible takes sin in the church so seriously. It's not because as often you know, portrayed in movies that people are legalistic and that people are just looking down and judging. No, it's because that sin threatens the entire church. The transformation that takes place is Jesus changing each of us and Jesus changing all of us. But I want you to go back to what he says. He says, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Some people read that word conquered and they kind of get in their minds like, Oh, you know, lion of Judah, ooh, you know, big, strong king. You know, the root of Jesse, you know, the root of David in this case, you know, oh, following this kingly line. He's conquered. Well, how do kings conquer? And then they just forget. And they don't ask the question How did Jesus conquer? Oh, he conquered by dying on the cross, he conquered by serving, he conquered through humility. Why is this important? Why is it important that we constantly remember or remind ourselves of, of how and why he conquered? Because the nature of the king is the nature of the kingdom. If you think I'm going, I want to be in that kingdom, but you know, I still want to live according to the way the world lives. I want to be in that kingdom, but I want to hold on to my pride. I want to hold on to my, my, my sense of, you know, uh, everything is about me. You can't be in the kingdom. You're missing the point of the kingdom. The nature of the victory shows us the nature of the king. The nature of the king shows us the nature of the kingdom. The early followers of Christ in Acts were called the followers of the way because Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus has shown us the way, and the way is not the way of power. That's the way of the world. It's not the way of personal survival. That's the way of the world. It's not the way of living for yourself and your pride, but it is the way of the cross. And there's a power in the cross that's not like the power in the world. Not simply because it's greater, but because it doesn't even have the same goals. It is that power that we see displayed on the cross when when people are mocking Jesus they're mocking him. They're looking at him in disdain. The Roman soldiers, they don't even care because he's just another criminal that they've, that they've executed. And from the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. I'm going to tell you, I know I do not have that kind of power. I know that if I was in Jesus' place, and if I managed to say those words, I, would just, I wouldn't mean them. I might say, like, Father, forgive them after you strike them dead. Then forgive them. But strike them dead first. Or maybe don't strike them dead, just torture them a little. You know, put them through some pain. Make them know what I'm feeling. And then, okay, Forgive. No conditions. Father, forgive them. I don't know that kind of power. I don't know it for me. I only know it because I look at Jesus. And I understand what Jesus was, was showing us. A different way. The Gospels tell us that at any moment, Jesus could have called a legion of angels. And he could have shown forever what is true that if you want to play the power game with with God, God's going to win. Even when we look in Revelation, you know, everybody thinks, oh, Armageddon, big battles. It's the worst movie ever. Jesus just shows up and goes, hey, throw that Satan guy in prison. Hi. All that build up. Because if it's just about power, God, God it's, it's not even worth God's time. If he can speak you into creation, he can speak you out of it. But what would have happened had he demonstrated even a little bit of his power to show how dominant he was? Then God would have forever said, power is the way. It's my way too. I'm just better at it than you. But Jesus shows us the hope. He shows us the way, and it's the way of the cross. If we keep reading here in verse 6, he says, And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Notice he had just said, Behold, look at the lion. And then he says, I saw a lamb. So when he looked, when he looked at the lion, he saw a lamb. And not just a lamb, it's, you know, bad enough that it's a lamb, you know. What is that puppet, lamb chops, you know? Like, oh. But it's not just a lamb. It's a lamb as though it had been slain. Probably a bloody lamb. With seven horns and with seven eyes. Kind of freaky. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And Jesus, I mean, John knows who this is. John, throughout his gospel, had referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God. He says, and he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him. Who else can walk up to God on his throne and take the scroll? And he says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp In case you've been wondering, like, oh, this kingdom talk, God came to create it. Where did you get that from, Pastor? Well, here's one place. The new song, the worship that comes out is is affirming God's plan from the beginning that Jesus came to establish a kingdom. He came to establish a kingdom. And keep in mind, The nature of the kingdom is from the nature of the king. If we're truly the church, then the nature of our church is the nature of our king. Instead of that dark, depressing, hopeless Roman one world full of people who think they're in control, think they're in power, but are really enslaved to their sin, enslaved to the powers of the world, enslaved to their their lusts. Instead of that world, we get the Romans 12 world at the other side of the end of that book, of that letter. And we get a little glimpse into the nature of the kingdom. This is what Paul tells them at the end. And this is after he's, he's told them that they're to be one body in Christ and, and that they all have different gifts and they're to bring those gifts together and serve one another. And then he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's a different world, it's a different kingdom. Notice how, how little of it, in fact, how none of it, is about you or about me. But it's all about us. And it's all about how we, we care for one another and we love one another and we show honor to one another. It only takes one person in a relationship to make it dysfunctional by making the relationship all about them. And then it's terrible when it's two people. It's even worse. Can you imagine, you know, if you're in that kind of a marriage relationship? Well, think about if you have a church full of everybody who's only in it for themselves. What hope do you have to be this? He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That doesn't mean just those who persecute you outside. That even means the ones inside, inside your family, inside your church that you feel are persecuting them. Bless them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. No one celebrates alone. No one mourns alone. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine says the lord to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head some of you might go aha see we're only being nice so we can dump burning coals on their head and vaporize them it's like no that's not the picture that sign of having coals on your head was a sign of repentance Remember that other crazy thing I said about loving each other to holiness? That's what this is talking about. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so, this chapter, so much of it is about this, but we're going to see it even more here. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I told you, repentance. Repentance is one of those responses we have to Jesus because it's the turning towards Jesus. It's looking full into his wonderful face. The other response, that when you really encounter Jesus, in fact, it is the only response, and that is worship. Worship. The throne room is being pictured here, is full of worship. People who are much holier than us, much more deserving of, than us. It talks about them casting down their crowns. Why? because they see the lamb. And the only response they can give is worship. How do I know if I know Jesus? How do I know if if Jesus is in my life? How do I know that I've encountered Jesus? If you encounter Jesus, you will worship Jesus, period. That's it. Encounter Jesus, worship Jesus. If you're struggling to worship Jesus, I'm going to tell you, and I'm not telling this to be judgmental, I'm telling this to try to rescue you, then you don't know Jesus. Jesus isn't in your life. Jesus isn't transforming you. You don't know his grace. You don't know his forgiveness. You don't know his gifts. You don't know any of it. Because if you did, you would not want to leave this place. And if you leave this place, you would only leave this place knowing you can worship Jesus wherever you are. We encounter Jesus. We worship Jesus. You want to make our worship services better? That's what we do here is worship service. This isn't all the worship, but if you want to make this worship service better, encounter Jesus. I guarantee you, encounter Jesus. And you'll come back here and you'll go like, Wow, Cheryl got a lot better. (laughs) Wow. You know, the band are so much better. But we come in here not encountering Jesus, somehow expecting some of us human beings to try to generate an experience so you can encounter Jesus in this place. If you cannot encounter Jesus out there, you're not going to encounter him here. That's some kind of magic, voodoo, superstitious Christian Christianity that I don't preach and I don't follow. If you're waiting for someone else to manufacture an experience for you, you're, you're waiting for the wrong thing. If we've all spent a week of encountering Jesus and we come together encountering Jesus in this place, this place cannot contain our worship. even I could bring my ukulele up here and sing and lead you and you would think that was an incredible worship experience. But so many churches get ruined by people coming, expecting someone to make them worship. There is only one who causes you to worship. And that's when you encounter Jesus. There are so many churches ruined by creating manufactured experiences of worship, where people leave feeling good. And by the way, sometimes we need that. I've been in worship services where it's exactly what I needed. But that can't be my diet every week. It can't be my diet throughout my life. I need to encounter Jesus. And when I encounter Jesus, I cannot help but worship him. And as Paul reminds us in this verse, worship is not just about singing. It's not just about thinking lofty thoughts about God. Those, those things are all worship. But the worship in the bigger picture is the response in how we live we encounter Jesus we worship Jesus but worshiping him is not just a feeling that we have but it's how we live our lives as paul says i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable god which is your spiritual worship it's there present our bodies as living sacrifice our spiritual worship.